Hello everyone, and welcome back to the Drunken Storytellers podcast, where I, your erstwhile host, folklore nerd, freelance RPG writer and mad scientist, take you on a tour of folklore, myths and legends from across the globe, with some inane drunk ramblings occasionally thrown in. In this episode, um, I've been a little bit lazy, sorry. Uh, life is currently a little bit busy at the moment with various projects going on and work. So I've not had the time to plan anything in detail for this episode. Uh, it was meant to be the Luganasa episode, but as I say, I didn't really have enough time to look into this in detail. So that will be coming. Um, there'll be a slight change to, to what usually happens with, with the festival episodes, but it will be coming along, so don't worry about that. Uh, instead, uh, because I didn't really have any time to plan anything, I've uh, got some stories to read for you, some spooky tales, shall we say. Uh, both of these are written by people who have featured on this podcast before, who I've read stories from before. Um, one is the great Algernon Blackwood, so we're going back into his dark mind to see a new ghost story from him. And we also have a story from Japan, uh, one I've known for quite some time and I quite like the tale. Uh, again, this is recorded by... This is the version recorded and written by Lafcadio Hearn. So I'll be reading these as, as they appear. Um, there are two stories, so you may want to split the episode up and listen to it in two parts, or just listen to it all the way through. So, without further waiting, grab yourself a drink, sit back, and enjoy the tales. The Woman's Ghost Story by Algernon Blackwood Yes, she said from a seat in the dark corner. I'll tell you an experience if you care to listen. And what's more, I'll tell it briefly, without trimmings. I mean, without unessentials. That's a thing storytellers never do, you know, she laughed. They drag in all the unessentials and leave their listeners to disentangle. But I'll give you just the essentials, and you can make of it what you please but on one condition, that at the end you ask no questions, because I can't explain it and have no wish to. We agreed. We were all serious. After listening to a dozen prolix stories from people who merely wished to talk but had nothing to tell, we wanted essentials. In those days, she began, feeling the quality of our silence that we were with her, in those days, I was interested in psychic things, and had arranged to sit up alone in a haunted house in the middle of London. It was cheap and dingy lodging house in a mean street, unfurnished. I had already made a preliminary examination in daylight that afternoon, and the keys from the caretaker, who lived next door, were in my pocket. The story was a good one. It satisfied me at any rate that it was worth investigating, and I won't weary you with our details. As to the woman's murder and all the tiresome elaboration as to why the place was alive. Enough that it was. I was a good deal bored, therefore, to see a man whom I took to be the talkative old caretaker, waiting for me on the steps when I went in at 11pm, for I had sufficiently explained that I wished to be there alone for the night. I wish to show you the room, he mumbled, and of course I couldn't exactly refuse, having tipped him for the temporary loan of a chair and a table. 
Come in then, and, and let's be quick, they said. We went in, he shuffling after me through the unlighted hall up to the first floor where the murder had taken place, and I prepared myself to hear his inevitable account before turning him out with the half-crown his persistence had earned. After lighting the gas, I sat down in the armchair he had provided, a faded, brown plush armchair, and turned for the first time to face him and get through with the performance as quickly as possible. And it was in that instant I got my first shock. The man was not the caretaker. It was not the old fool Carey who I had interviewed earlier in the day and made my plans with. My heart gave a horrid jump. Now, who are you, pray? I said. You're not Carey, the man I arranged with this afternoon. Who are you? I felt uncomfortable, as you may imagine. I was a psychical researcher and a young woman of new tendencies, and proud of my liberty, but I did not care to find myself in an empty house with a stranger. Something of my confidence left me. Confidence with women, you know, is all humbug after a certain point. Or perhaps you don't know, for most of you are men. But anyhow, my pluck ebbed in a quick rush and I felt afraid. Who are you? I repeated quickly and nervously. The fellow was well-dressed, youngish and good-looking, but with a face of great sadness. I myself was barely thirty. I'm giving you essentials, or I would not mention it. Out of quite ordinary things comes this story. I think that is why it has value. No, he said. I'm the man who was frightened to death. His voice and words ran through me like a knife, and I felt ready to drop. In my pocket was the book I had brought to make notes in. I felt the pencil sticking in the socket. I felt, too, the extra warm things I had put on to sit up in, as no bed or sofa was available. A hundred things dashed through my mind, foolishly and without sequence or meaning, as the way is when one is really frightened. And essentials leaped up and puzzled me, and I thought of what the papers might say if it came out, and what my smart brother-in-law would think, and whether it would be told that I had cigarettes in my pocket, and I was a th free thinker. The man who was frightened to death, I repeated aghast. That's me, he said stupidly. I stared at him just as you would have done, any one of you men now listening to me, and felt my life ebbing and flowing like a sort of hot fluid. You needn't laugh, that's how I felt. Small things, you know, touch the mind with great earnestness when terror is there. Real terror. But I might have been a middle-class tea party for all the ideas I had. They were so ordinary. But I thought you were the caretaker I tipped this afternoon to let me sleep here, I gasped. Did, did Carrie send you to meet me? No, he replied in a voice that touched my boots somehow. I am the man who was frightened to death. And what is more, I am frightened now. So am I, I managed to mutter, speaking instinctively. I am simply terrified. Yes, he replied in that same odd voice that seemed to sound within me. But you are still in the flesh, and I am not. I felt the need for vigorous self-assertion 
I stood up in that empty, unfurnished room, digging the nails into my palms and clenching my teeth. I was determined to assert my individuality and my courage as a new woman and a free soul. You mean to say you are not in the flesh? I gasped. What in the world are you talking about? The silence of the night swallowed up my voice. For the first time I realised that darkness was over the city, that dust lay upon the stairs, that the floor above was untenanted, and the floor below empty. I was alone in an unoccupied and haunted house, unprotected, and a woman. I chilled. I heard the wind round the house and knew the stars were hidden. My thoughts rushed to the policemen and the omnibuses and everything that was useful and comforting. I suddenly realised what a fool I was to come to such a house alone. I was icily afraid. I thought the end of my life had come. I was an utter fool to go in for psychical research when I had not the necessary nerve. Good God, I gasped, if you're not Kerry, the man I arranged with, who are you? I was really stiff with terror. The man moved slowly towards me across the empty room. I held out my arm to stop him, getting up out of my chair at the same moment, and he came to halt just opposite me, a smile on his worn, sad face. I told you who I am, he repeated with a sigh, looking at me with the saddest eyes I have ever seen. And I am frightened still. By this time I was convinced that I was entertaining either a rogue or a madman, and I cursed my stupidity in bringing the man in without having seen his face. My mind was quickly made up, and I knew what to do. Ghosts and psychic phenomena flew to the winds. If I angered the creature, my life might pay the price. I must humour him till I got to the door, and then race for the street. I stood bolt upright and faced him. We were about of a height, and I was a strong, athletic woman who played hockey in winter and climbed Alps in summer. My hand itched for a stick, but I had none. Now, of course, I remember, I said with a sort of stiff smile that was very hard to force. Now I remember your case and the wonderful way you behaved. The man stared at me stupidly turning his head to watch me as I backed more and more quickly to the door. But when his face broke into a smile, I could control myself no longer. I reached the door in a run and shot out onto the landing. Like a fool, I turned the wrong way and stumbled over the stairs leading to the next story. But it was too late to change. The man was after me, I was sure. Though no sound of footsteps came, and I dashed up to the next flight, tearing my skirt and banging my ribs in the darkness and rushed headlong into the first room I came to. Luckily, the door stood ajar, and still more fortunate, there was a key in the lock. In a second I had slammed the door, flung my whole weight against it, and turned the key. I was safe, but my heart was beating like a drum. A second later, it seemed to stop altogether, for I saw that there was someone else in the room besides myself. A man's figure stood between me and the windows, where the street lamps gave just enough light to outline his shape against the glass. I'm a plucky woman, you know, but even then I didn't give a hope, but 
I may tell you that I have never felt so vilely frightened in all my born days. I had locked myself in with him. The man leaned against the window, watching me where I lay in a collapsed heap upon the floor. So there were two men in the house with me, I reflected. Perhaps other rooms were occupied too. What could it all mean? But as I stared, something changed in the room, or in me. Hard to say which, and I realised my mistake. So that my fear, which had so far been physical, at once altered its character and became psychical. I became afraid in my soul instead of in my heart, and I knew immediately who this man was. How in the world did you get up here? I stammered to him across the empty room, amazement momentarily stemming my fear. Now, let me tell you, he began in that odd, faraway voice of his that went down my spine like a knife. I'm in a different space, for one thing, and you'd find me in any room you went into, for according to your way of measuring, I'm all over the house. Space is a bodily condition, but I am out of the body and am not affected by space. It's my condition that keeps me here. I want something to change my condition for me, for then I could get away. What I want is sympathy, or really, more than sympathy. I want affection. I want love. While he was speaking, I gathered myself slowly upon my feet. I wanted to scream and cry and laugh all at once, but I only succeeded in sighing, for my emotion was exhausted and a numbness was coming over me. I felt for the matches in my pocket and made a movement towards the gas jet. I should be much happier if you didn't like the gas, he said at once, for the vibrations of your light hurt me a good deal. You need not be afraid that I shall injure you. I can't touch your body to begin with, for there's a great gulf fixed, you know, and really this half-light suits me best. Now, let me continue what I was trying to say before. You know, so many people have come to this house to see me, and most of them have seen me and one and all have been terrified. If only, oh, if only someone would not be terrified, but kind and loving to me. Then, you see, I might be able to change my condition and get away. His voice was so sad that I felt tears start somewhere in the back of my eyes, but fear kept all else in check and I stood shaking and cold as I listened to him. Who are you then? Of course Carrie didn't send you. I, I know now, I managed to utter. My thoughts scattered dreadfully, and I could think of nothing to say. I was afraid of a stroke. I know nothing about Carrie or who he is, continued the man quietly, and the name my body had I have forgotten, thank God. But I am the man who was frightened to death in this house ten years ago, 
and I have been frightened ever since, and frightened still for the succession of cruel and curious people who come to this house to see the ghost, and thus keep alive its atmosphere of terror only helps to render my condition worse. If only someone would be kind to me, laugh, speak gently, and rationally with me, cry if they like, pity, comfort, soothe me, anything but come here in curiosity and terrible as you are now doing in that corner. Now, madame, won't you take pity on me? His voice rose to a dreadful cry. Won't you step out into the middle of the room and try to love me a little? A horrible laughter came gurgling up in my throat as I heard him, but the sense of pity was stronger than laughter, and I found myself actually leaving the support of the world wall and approaching the centre of the floor. By God, he cried, at once straightening up against the windows. You have done a kind act. That's the first attempt at sympathy that has been shown me since I died, and I feel better already. In life, you know, I was a misanthrope. Everything went wrong with me, and I came to hate my fellow men so much that I couldn't bear to see them even. Of course, like begets like, and this hate was returned. Finally, I suffered from horrible delusions, and my room became haunted with demons that laughed and grimaced. And one night I ran into a whole cluster of them near the bed, and the fright stopped my heart and killed me. It's hate and remorse, as much as terror, that clogs me so thickly and keeps me here. If only someone could feel pity and sympathy, and perhaps a little love for me, I could get away and be happy. When you came this afternoon to see the house, I watched you, and a little hope came to me for the first time. I saw you had courage, originality, resource, love. If only I could touch your heart without frightening you, I knew I could perhaps tap that love you have stored up in there, and thus burrow the wings for my escape. Now, I must confess my heart began to ache a little, as fear left me and the man's words sank their sad meaning into me. Still, the whole affair was so incredible and so touched with unholy quality and the story of a woman's murder I had come to investigate so obviously nothing to do with this thing, that I found myself in a kind of wild dream that seemed likely to stop at any moment and leave me somewhere in bed after a nightmare. Moreover, his words possessed me to such an extent that I found it impossible to reflect upon anything else at all, or to consider adequately any ways or means of actions or escape. I moved a little nearer to him in the gloom, Horribly frightened, of course, but with the beginnings of a strange determination in my heart. You women, he continued, his voice plainly thrilling at my approach. You wonderful women, to whom life often brings no opportunity of spending your great love. Oh, if only you could know how many of us simply yearn for it. It would save our souls. 
if but you knew you might find the chance that you now have but if you only spend your love freely without definite object just letting it flow openly for all who need you would reach hundreds and thousands of souls like me and release us oh madam i ask you again to feel with me to be kind and gentle and if you can to love me a little my heart did leap within me and this time the tears did come for i could not restrain them i laughed too for the way he called me madame sounded so odd here in this empty room at midnight in a london street but my laughter stopped dead and merged into a flood of weeping when i saw how my change of feeling affected him he had left his place by the window and was kneeling on the floor at my feet his hands stretched out towards me and the first signs of a kind of glory about his head put your arms around me and kiss me for the love of god he cried kiss me oh kiss me and i shall be freed you have done so much already now do this i stuck there hesitating shaking my determination on the verge of action yet not quite able to compass it but the terror had almost gone forget that i'm a man and you're a woman he continued in the most beseeching voice i ever heard forget that i am a ghost and come out boldly and press me to you with a great kiss and let your love flow into me forget yourself for just one minute and do a brave thing oh love me love me love me and i shall be free the words or the deep force they somehow released in the center of my being stirred me profoundly and an emotion infinitely greater than fear surged over me and carried me with it across the edge of action without hesitation i took two steps forwards towards him where he knelt and held out my arms pity and love were in my heart at that moment genuine pity i swear and genuine love i forgot myself and my little tremblings in a great desire to help another soul i love you poor aching unhappy thing i love you i cried through hot tears and i'm not the least bit afraid in the world the man uttered a curious sound like laughter yet not laughter and turned his face up to me the light from the street below fell on it but there was another light too shining all around it that seemed to come from the eyes and the skin he rose to his feet and met me and in that second i folded him into my breast and kissed him full on the lips again and again all our pipes had gone out and not even a skirt rustled in the dark studio as the storyteller paused a moment to steady her voice and put a hand softly to her eyes before going on again now what can i say and how can i describe to you all you skeptical men sitting there with your pipes in your mouths the amazing sensation i experienced of holding an intangible impalpable thing so closely to my heart that it touched my body with equal pressure all the way down and then melted away somewhere into my very being. 
for it was like seizing a rush of cold wind and feeling a touch of burning fire at the moment it had struck its swift blow and passed on. A series of shocks ran all over and all through me. A momentary ecstasy of flaming sweetness and wonder thrilled down into me. My heart gave another great leap and then I was alone. The room was empty. I turned on the gas and struck a match to prove it. And fear had left me, and something was singing round me in the air and in my heart, like the joy of a spring morning in youth. Not all the devils or shadows or hauntings in the world could have caused me a single tremor. I unlocked the door and went all over the dark house, even into kitchen and cellar and up among the ghostly attics. But the house was empty. Something had left it. I lingered a short hour, analysing, thinking, wondering. You can guess what and how, perhaps, but I won't detail, for I promised only essentials, remember, and then went out to sleep the remainder of the night in my own flat, locking the door behind me upon a house no longer haunted. But my uncle, Sir Henry, the owner of the house required an account of my adventure, and of course I was in duty bound to give him some kind of true story. Before I could begin, however, he held up his hand to stop me. First, he said, I wish to tell you a little deception I ventured to practice on you. So many people have been to that house and seen the ghost that I came to think the story acted on their imaginations, and I wished to make a better test. So I invented, for their benefit, another story, with the idea that if you did see anything, I could be sure it was not due merely to an excited imagination. Then what you told me about a woman having been murdered and all that was not the true story of the haunting. It was not. The true story is that a cousin of mine went mad in that house and killed himself in a fit of morbid terror following years of miserable hypochondrias. It is his figure that investigators see. That explains, then, I gasped. Explains what? I thought of that poor struggling soul, longing all these years for escape, and determined to keep my story for the present to myself. Explains... I mean, why I did not see the ghost of the murdered woman, I concluded. Precisely, said Sir Henry, and why, if you had seen anything, it would have had value, inasmuch as it could not have been caused by the imagination working upon a story you already knew. There you go. The woman's ghost story. A sad haunting reflection of the desires of the soul, maybe. And tale two, the dream of Akinosuke from Kwaidan, Stories and Studies of Strange Things by Lafcadio Hearn. In the district called Toichi of Yamato province, there used to live a gosha named Miyata Akinosuke. Here I must tell you that in Japanese feudal times, there was a privileged class of soldier farmers freeholders, corresponding to the class of yeomen in England, and these were called Goshi. 
In Akonoska's garden, there was a great and ancient cedar tree, under which he was wont to rest on sultry days. One very warm afternoon, he was sitting under the tree with two of his friends, fellow Goshi, chatting and drinking wine, when he felt all of a sudden very drowsy. So drowsy that he's begged his friends to excuse him for taking a nap in their presence. Then he lay down at the foot of the tree, and he dreamed this dream. He thought that as he was lying there in his garden, he saw a procession, like the train of some great daimyo descending a hill nearby, and that he got up to look at it. A very grand procession it proved to be, more imposing than anything of the kind which he had ever seen before, and it was advancing towards his dwelling. He observed in the van of it a number of young men richly apparelled, who were drawing a great lacquered palace carriage, of, or Goshugurama, hung with bright blue silk. When the procession arrived within the short distance of the house, it halted, and a richly dressed man, evidently a person of rank, advanced from it, approached Akinosuke, bowed to him profoundly, and then said, Honoured sir, you see before you a kirei of the Kokuro of Tokyo, my master. The king commands me to greet you in his august name and to place myself wholly at your disposal. He also bids me inform you that he augustly desires your presence at the palace. Be therefore pleased immediately to enter this honourable carriage, which he has sent for your conveyance. Upon hearing these words, Akinosuke wanted to make some fitting reply, but he was too much astonished and embarrassed for speech and in the same moment he w his will seemed to melt away from him, so that he could only do as the Kerai bade him. He entered the carriage, the Kerai took a place beside him, and made a signal. The drawers, seizing the silken ropes, turned the great vehicle southward, and the journey began. In a very short time, to Akinosuke's amazement, the carriage stopped in front of a huge two-storied gateway of Chinese style which he had never seen before. Here the Kelai dismounted, saying, I go to announce the honourable arrival, and he disappeared. After some little waiting, Akinoski saw two noble-looking men, wearing robes of purple silk and high caps of the form of indicating lofty rank, come from the gateway. These, after having respectively saluted him, helped him to descend from the carriage and led him through the great gate and across a vast garden, the entrance of a palace whose front appeared to extend west and east to a distance of miles. Akinosuke was then shown into a reception room of wonderful size and splendour. His guides conducted him to the place of honour and respectively seated themselves apart, while serving maids in the costumes of ceremony brought refreshments. When Akinosuke had partaken of his refreshments, the two purple-robed attendants bowed low before him and addressed him in the following words, each speaking alternately according to the etiquette of courts. It is now our honourable duty to inform you, as to the reason of you having been summoned hither, our master, the king, augustly desires that you become his son-in-law, and it is his wish and command that you should wed this very day, the august princess, his maiden daughter, we shall soon conduct you to the presence chamber. 
where his augustness, even now, is waiting to receive you. But it will be necessary that we first invest you with the appropriate garments of ceremony. Having thus spoken, the attendants rose together and proceeded to an alcove containing a great chest of gold lacquer. They opened the chest and took from it various robes and girdles of rich material, and a kamori, or regal headdress. With these they attired Akinosuke as befitted princely bridegroom, and he was then conducted to the presence room, where he saw the Kokoro of Tokyo seated upon a upon the dizer, wearing a high black cap of state, and robed in robes of yellow silk, before the dizer to the left and right, a multitude of dignitaries sat in rank, motionless and splendid as images in a temple. And Akinosuke, advancing into their midst, saluted the king with a triple prostration of usage. The king greeted him with gracious words, and then said, you have already been informed as to the reason of your having been summoned to our presence. We have decided that you shall become the adopted husband of our only daughter, and the wedding ceremony shall now be performed. As the king finished speaking, a sound of joyful music was heard, and a long train of beautiful court ladies advanced from behind a curtain to conduct Akinosuke to the room in which his bride awaited him. The room was immense, but it could scarcely contain the multitude of guests assembled to witness the wedding ceremony. All bowed down before Akinosuke as he took his place, facing the king's daughter, on the kneeling cushion prepared for him. As a maiden of heaven the bride appeared to be, and her robes were beautiful as a summer's guy. The marriage was performed amid great rejoicing. Afterwards, the pair were conducted to a suite of apartments that had been prepared for them in another portion of the palace. And there they received the congratulations of many noble persons and wedding gifts beyond counting. Some days later, Akinosuke was again summoned to the throne room. On this occasion, he was received even more graciously than before, and the king said unto him, in the southwestern part of our domain, there is an island called Raishu. We have now appointed you governor of that island. You will find the people loyal and docile, but their laws have not yet been brought into proper accord with the laws of Tokyo, and their customs have not been properly regulated. We entrust you with the duty of improving their social condition, as far as may be possible and we desire that you shall rule them with kindness and wisdom. All preparations necessary for your journey to Elishu have already been made. So, Akinosuke and his bride departed from the palace of Tokyo, accompanied to the shore by a great escort of nobles and officials, and embarked upon a ship of state provided by the king. And with favouring winds they safely sailed to Elishu, and found the good people of that island assembled upon the beach to welcome them. Akinosuke entered at once upon his new duties, and they did not prove to be hard. During the first three years of his governorship, he was occupied chiefly with the framing and the enactment of laws, but he had wise counsellors to help him, and he had never found the work unpleasant. When it was all finished, he had no active duties to perform, beyond attending the rites and ceremonies ordained by ancient custom. The country was so healthy and so fertile that sickness and want were unknown, and the people were so good that no laws were ever broken. 
And Akinosuke dwelt and ruled in Rilaishu for twenty years more, making in all twenty-three years of sojourn, during which no shadow of sorrow traversed his life. But in the twenty-fourth year of his governorship, great misfortune came upon him, for his wife, who had borne him seven children, five boys and two girls, fell sick and died. She was buried with high pomp on the summit of the beautiful hill in the district of Hanlioko, and a monument, exceedingly splendid, was placed upon her grave. But Akinosuke felt such grief at her death that he no longer cared to live. Now, when the legal period of mourning was over, there came to Raishu from the Tokyo palace a shisha, or royal messenger. The shisha delivered to Akinosuke a message of condolence and then said to him, These are the words with which am August Master, the King of Tokyo, commands that I repeat to you. We will now send you back to your own people and country. As for the seven children, they are our grandsons and granddaughters of the King, and shall be fit, fitly cared for. Do not, therefore, allow your mind to be troubled concerning them. On receiving this mandate, Akinosuke submissively prepared for his departure. When all his affairs had been settled, and the ceremony of bidding farewell to his council and trusted officials had been concluded, he was escorted with much honour to the port, and there he embarked upon the ship sent for him. The ship sailed out into the blue sea, under the blue sky, and the shape of the island of Laishu itself turned to blue, and then to grey, and then vanished for ever. Akinosuke suddenly awoke under the cedar tree in his own garden. For a moment he was stupefied and dazed, but he perceived his two friends still seated near him, drinking and chatting merrily. He stared at them in a bewildered way and cried aloud, How strange! Akinosuke must have been dreaming, one of them exclaimed with a laugh. What did you see, Akinosuke? That was strange. Then... Akinosuke told his dream, the dream of three and twenty years sojourn in the realm of Tokyo, in the island of Raishu, and they were astonished, because he had really slept for no more than a few minutes. Wongo, she said, indeed you saw strange things. We also saw something strange while you were napping. A little yellow butterfly was fluttering over your face for a moment or two, and we watched it. Then alighted on the ground beside you, close to the tree. And almost as soon as it alighted there, a big black ant came out of a hole and seized it and pulled it down into the hole. Just before you woke up, we saw that very butterfly come out of the hole again and flutter over your face as before. And then, it suddenly disappeared. We do not know where it went. Perhaps it was Akinoski's soul, the other girl she said. Certainly I thought I saw it fly into his mouth. But then, if that butterfly was Akinosuke's soul, the fact would not explain his dream. The ants might explain it, returned the first speaker. Ants are queer things. Possibly goblins. Anyway, there's a big ant's nest under the cedar tree. Ooh, let us look, cried Akinosuke, greatly moved by the suggestion, and he went for a spade. The ground about and beneath the cedar tree proved to have been excavated, in a most surprising way, by a prestigious colony of ants. 
The ants had furthermore built inside their excavations and their tiny constructions of straw, clay, and stems bore an odd resemblance to a miniature town. In the middle of a structure considerably larger than the rest was a marvellous swarming of small ants around the body of one very big ant, which had yellowish wings and a long black head. Why, there is the king of my dream, cried Akinosuke, and there is the palace of Tokyo. How extraordinary! Laishu ought to lie somewhere southwest of it, to the left of that big route. Yes, here it is. How very strange. Now I am sure that I can find the mountain of Hanlyoko and the grave of the princess. In the wreck of the nest he searched and searched, and at last discovered a tiny mound, on the top of which was fixed a water-worn pedal in the shape resembling a Buddhist monument. Underneath it he found, embedded in clay, the dead body of a female ant. And that is Akinoski's dream. So I hope you enjoyed those two stories. Um, a little different to each other, but still I think both have some interesting messages in them. A little bit haunting, a little bit sad, a little bit spooky. And we like the spooky here. So, as I say, I hope you enjoyed that. Um, we will come back hopefully next time with the Lugnasa episode. Um, I will get on that and I might be able to actually talk about some of the projects I've been working on and and yeah, so that should be fun. So keep an eye out for the next episode. All that is left for me to say is thank you and goodbye my friends. <laughs>